I'm Paul Evans and welcome to Airing Pain, a programme brought to you by Pain Concern, the UK charity providing information and support for those of us living with pain. This edition has been funded by a grant from the Scottish Government. If you look at population studies of people with chronic headache, anything up to 20 or 30% of patients are overusing painkillers. And if you look at specific clinic-based studies of patients who've been referred by a GP to a specialist, anything up to 70% of those patients overuse medication. The nerve that the virus used to travel to the skin surface by has been damaged by the virus travelling along the nerve and it carries on sending these pain messages to your brain. And that's what people talk about when they say they've got shingles months later. It's not shingles, it's now called post-herpetic neuralgia. In this edition of Airing Pain, we're looking at two conditions that can have a major bearing on how we live our lives. One deriving from a virus that nearly all of us have carried since childhood, and the other is headache. David Watson's a GP in Aberdeen with a long-standing interest in headache. As well as his general practice, he jointly runs a headache clinic in the Department of Neurology, Aberdeen Royal Infirmary. And he was involved in developing headache guidelines and standards at a national level in Scotland. Now, we all get headaches, so shouldn't we just put up with them? Tension headache's probably the commonest headache that everyone can get, but tension headache's just a a non-disabling headache and if you've had a bad day at work or you're a bit tired and you probably go and get some fresh air, go for a walk, maybe take a paracetamol, whatever. But migraine, on the other hand, is a disabling headache, probably affects up to six, seven million people in the United Kingdom. And migraine, by definition, is a headache that is worse with activity. And if you say to a, someone who gets migraine, what do you do when you get the migraine? Very often they feel they need to stop activities. And interestingly, the World Health Organization would put migraine in its top 20 disabling conditions. And I'm saying, in fact, in women in its top 12 disabling conditions. And if you can imagine that migraine's a moderate to severe headache, it's made worse by movement. Some people feel squeamish or sick with it, and other people find that they're, they're very sensitive to the room, whether it be noise or light or smells. And and if you get one of those really bad migraine episodes, then probably you're going to be sitting in a dark room or even lying down. And because of that, you're, you're not able to do activities. So I, I think you know, we need to take migraine very seriously because it's probably one of the commonest causes, for example, short-term sickness absence in the UK. And they reckon probably costs a couple of billion pounds a year in lost revenue to the economy. And for the sufferer, very difficult. I mean, a lot of people get migraine very often live in fear of their next migraine it's a bit like the, the weather and weddings it's no respecter of planned activities and people live in fear or dread about having to cancel activities or you know, meeting a friend going to cinema going out with their, their partner and interestingly if you speak to the partners of people with migraine they've had situations where it's me that's gone to the party and, and partner's been left at home for example I can vouch for that I've been in that situation as well my wife, my mother-in-law and my daughter all get migraine and I, I'm, I'm very lucky I probably only get about four migraine a year and it's my way of the body just saying to slow down and you've got to get some proper rest. But I remember before I got married meeting my wife in Amsterdam 
and it was the old Lloyd Cole and Commotion song, A Lost Weekend in a Hotel in Amsterdam, as my, my poor wife was lying there with her migraine, and I was thinking, do I sit in the hotel room all weekend with her, or, or do I um, go out and see the sights of Amsterdam? <laughs> so, yes, it, it's, it's incredibly disabling, not just for the patient, but for, for family members as well. We're laughing about it now. It really is a serious problem for people. I think the single biggest difficulty for people with migraine is people who don't get migraine calling it just a headache. And I think someone who, who gets disabling migraine, you know, for example, they phone in to the boss in the morning and say, I'm, I'm really sorry, I've got a bad migraine today. There's kind of a bit of a, what do you mean you can't come in, it's only a headache. And, you know, this poor person's lying in a dark room with a sick bucket by their bed, daring not to move because the pain's so severe. So yes, I, I laugh about being in that situation, a headache doctor with my wife having migraine, but absolutely, you know, it's incredibly disabling. I mean, you say you get a couple of migraines a year. Do you know what causes those? We don't know what causes migraine. So when I see patients and they say, can I have a cure? I have to explain that we don't know the cause, so we can't give a cure. But what we know is that the migraine brain is sensitive to the environment, whether it's our internal environment or our external environment. And it's almost like there's a switch in the bottom bit of the brain, and when it gets switched on, you get this wave of energy going across the brain, setting off the chemical changes that then result in all the migraine symptoms. And in a sense, how often you get your migraine is set by how sensitive the genes you've inherited have set that switch. So I'm lucky that it takes quite a lot to set me over that threshold. And you know, the migraine brain likes a regularity. It likes regular meals, regular sleep, regular exercise. It's much more common, as we know, in ladies because of hormonal changes. So that's why three times as many ladies get migraines. So that's a sort of internal environment. And then the external environment... You know, some patients will have specific foods or smells. I have a colleague, for example, who a particular perfume will set, will set him off. He remembers being in a lift at a meeting once and getting a migraine after standing close to a couple of ladies who had this uh, particular perfume that set him off. Some migraines, for example, can predict weather changes. They have that kind of atmospheric pressure change. So I know in my case it's it's burning the candle at both ends, trying to do too much, maybe rushing around at work and not drinking enough fluids during the day, missing lunch because I've had to go to a meeting or whatever it might be. And it's almost the brain's just getting wound up and wound up and wound up and then that release of pain. And I'm probably quite lucky, actually. My headaches aren't painful, painful, but I get all the, the kind of non-regular symptoms. I'm a bit clumsy. I'm, my speech isn't quite as clear. It's, you know, this, my brain goes into this kind of fog and I know that I probably need two or three nights of, of proper sleep and eating at the right time, drinking plenty of fluids. So we know for, for, for patients that if they have a combination of these factors will we'll kind of bring migraine on for them. We see a lot of patients at the clinic who have what we call chronic migraine. Now, chronic in headache terms simply means headache on 15 or more days a month. So most patients with migraine will get one or two migraine a month that might last a day or two days. Very disabling for that patient. But there are patients who get headache a lot of the time, certainly more than half the month. 
and if eight of those days are migraineous, then we call that chronic migraine. And it's inevitable that most of the people I see at the clinic with chronic migraine are ladies in their late 30s into their 40s, and they very likely are starting to become slightly perimenopausal, so hormone levels are just starting to go up and down. But they tend to be busy people. You know, they're working full-time, they've got children, they're running a household, they're probably on the parents' association, they're helping out with you know, scouts at the weekend or the church or whatever, and they're very often not getting proper regular sleep. They're n- not getting any time to themselves. And really, in a sense, their brain's just never getting a chance to, to switch off. And I very often say to, to these ladies, well, you know, we can try you with a medicine or a tablet, but I'm going to give you some homework. And that homework is I want you to find a time each day that's your time to try and switch your brain off. Now, I can't tell you how to switch your brain off. You know, some people it might be shut the bathroom door, a hot bath and a book. For others, it might be going out for a walk. But it's important for people with migraine to give their brain some downtime just to give it a, this kind of unwind time to, to relax it. And this isn't a self-inflicted thing. It's a genuine illness. It's not something you're putting on yourself. Absolutely not. You know, People with migraine have the genes that make them more sensitive to what happens in either inside the body or outside the body. You know, Someone who doesn't have migraine will do the same and not get headache. Unfortunately for the patient who gets migraine, their brain needs that kind of switch-off time. And I think it's for people to try and recognise that in themselves. You know, I've seen patients who have come back to me and they said, you know, I've managed to try and get a regular sleep. I'm making sure I don't miss breakfast. I'm better at drinking fluids than I do. You know, I still maybe get migraine now and then, but I'm not getting so many. You know, I saw a lady in the clinic the other day who works in the bakery at Tesco. I said, you know, hot place, do you drink any fluid? Oh, no, I don't drink it at all when I'm at work. And I said, what about lunch? Oh, well, I cut my lunch short and I can get away earlier so I can pick the children up from school. And when I saw her, she was much, much better and probably the medicine helped a bit, but she said, you know, I actually go out, out of Tesco's and I've go for a 20-minute walk at lunchtime and I make sure I've, I'm drinking plenty. And it's nice to think that maybe just a small change for some people can make a difference. It's interesting that what to many people would sound like common sense, that if you do work through your lunch, if you don't drink all day, well, you'd think you, that it would have an effect on you. But to be told that by a doctor, then it's OK. Yeah. I think sometimes with my GP hat on, a lot of what I do sometimes is, is try and put things into perspective for people or, or even kind of normalise it things a little bit don't get me wrong you know for a lot of people looking at lifestyle isn't the the whole answer with migraine and you know they've got this condition that they need medication as well but I think sometimes people almost get a little bit onto the kind of hamster wheel a little bit and and almost just need permission to get off that hamster wheel now and then you mentioned earlier that most patients' experience of dealing with their headaches is by going to the pharmacist and getting paracetamol and whatever is on the shelf. Is this a good practice? Patients who get a bad headache or a migraine every now and then, I think it's absolutely fine to self-manage. In fact, a lot of the guidelines would say that taking aspirin or ibuprofen is as good as the more specific migraine 
tablets. The difficulties for patients who are starting to get more frequent migraine, and we know that if you start having to take painkillers on a more regular basis, for some patients, painkillers will actually then cause headache. And we would probably say that patients would need to restrict painkillers to no more than two days a week. And unfortunately, medicines with codeine in tend to be the biggest culprits for, for headache caused by painkillers. And that's in things like sulpidine and migrolive and cocodamol and codidromol, you know, very common painkillers. So you're saying that overuse of these can actually cause the headaches? Absolutely, absolutely. So if you look at people who transform from an episodic migraine now and then into this chronic headache over half the month, a large factor in that for some patients is the overuse of painkillers. Now, the difficulty is that when you stop the painkillers, not everyone gets better. But certainly in our kind of clinic in Aberdeen, probably if you had 10 patients overusing painkillers and you stop those painkillers in about four weeks, probably six out of 10 patients would be a lot better. Not cured of migraine, they would still get their headache, but it would be back to being every now and then. But the four patients where stopping the medicines didn't help in terms of headache frequency. What we do know is the preventer treatments will work better if the overused medicine's not there. And if you look at, say, population studies of people with chronic headache, anything up to 20 or 30% of patients are overusing painkillers. And if you look at specific clinic-based studies of patients who've been referred by GP to a specialist, anything up to 70% of those patients overuse medication. Now, don't get me wrong, it's a perfectly understandable thing. If you've got pain, you, you take a painkiller, and you have patients who say, well, I have to take something when I wake up to get me through the day. And I think it's difficult for these people because when you stop a painkiller, the headache will probably get worse for the first week, 10 days, whilst the medicine's coming out of the system. And that's why it's really important to have a partnership with the patient. What would your advice be to somebody who is suffering headaches? How should they talk to their health professional? It's a good question. I think a lot of patients find it difficult to express the disability they get with migraine, especially. And they sometimes find it difficult to express the other symptoms that they get. And it never surprises me that headache doctors have a smile when patients come to see us and they've been referred up, for example, with a headache that they've had for two or three months. And I say to them, well, we need to talk about that headache, but I need to know about other headaches you've had in the past. And they say, oh, I just get normal headaches. And we smile because most people's normal headaches are migraine. And we say, can you explain what you mean by, by normal headache? And I said, oh, well, you know, I get this headache and I feel a bit sick and you know, quite often I have to go and lie down and you might explore that more with them you know, in ladies was it a period oh yes it was a headache I got with my period and when you say to patients well that's actually migraine they say oh no one's ever told me I've got migraine so patients very naturally play symptoms down and I think that's what's difficult for patients to try and understand that you know, you can't expect patients to know how to make a diagnosis, but it be I think what's useful for patients is to think about all the ways that headache affects them, 
Because what, what I say to GPs is that if you've got someone who comes in with a headache that's episodic, in other words, they get a headache for a day or two, then they're better for a couple of weeks, then they get a headache for a day or two, and that headache's associated with some disability, so the patients maybe want to stop activities, and they maybe feel a bit sick, and they don't like light, then those are kind of triggers to say this is going to be migraine. You know, most people just try and keep going, so they don't think of themselves as being disabled. And again, when I teach the medical students, I'll say, you know, if you say to a mum with three kids under the five, when you get migraines, you go and lie down, she's going to look at you and say, well, of course I don't go and lie down. Or someone who's got a difficult job and the boss is a bit difficult, you know, do you, do you go home when you get a migraine? They'll say, well, no, I just keep going. So you have to phrase the question and say, you know, for example, if your husband was home on the weekend and you got a migraine, what would you do? Oh, I'd, I'd go and lie down. So I think what's good for patients is before they see a, a doctor about headache is to think how that headache impacts on their life. And if they think, you know, this headache's stopping me doing things or it's preventing me doing things properly. In other words, you know, I, I keep going, but it's a struggle. Then it's to try and talk to the GP about that because what very often doctors focus on if they don't really understand migraine is where's the pain, which bit of your head and is it a sharp pain or a throbbing pain or a dull pain and so patients get sidetracked down describing the pain whereas migraine could be any kind of headache anywhere on the head and the keys to it are really more what the other symptoms are. You know, we have developed in Aberdeen a questionnaire that goes in a booklet out to patients and just to say to patients these are the sort of questions that a doctor is going to ask you you just have a wee think before you come to the clinic about you know, how the headache affects you I mean thinking about it you know that if if you come to the a GP for example and most patients with migraine will never see a specialist you probably maybe only one in a hundred patients with migraine will ever get referred to see a specialist so if you're going to the doctor because you're getting bad headaches you don't go in and talk about your child's chicken pox or your grand's dementia, problems that you get with your flat feet or whatever. You go in and make it a headache consultation so the GP has time just to talk about headache and go in thinking about how does this headache affect me and how does it impact on my life. And in that way, you're kind of prompting the doctor to ask you the right questions. Dr David Watson. I'll just remind you that whilst we on Pain Concern believe the information and opinions on airing pain are accurate and sound based on the best judgments available, you should always consult your health professional on any matter relating to your health and well-being. He or she is the only person who knows you and your circumstances and therefore the appropriate action to take on your behalf. Now, about one in five of us will have shingles at some time in our life, most likely after we've passed our 50th birthday. Marion Nicholson is the director of the Shingles Support Society. Shingles is the name we give to a repeat appearance of chickenpox virus. So what happens is everyone gets chickenpox as a kid, or nearly everyone in this country, it's about 95%. Then at some point in the future, chickenpox virus can reappear. Instead of coming out over your whole body, what it does this time is just come out in a, a line, perhaps around your ribs or side of your face. It's always one side of the body only. And it usually starts with a, a nasty pain, which 
often the patient doesn't recognize. That's one of the tricky things. They will say, I thought I had pulled a muscle or, do you know, I thought I was allergic to something I'd used or I thought I'd been bitten by an insect. And then after that pain, usually a couple of days, that's when the spots come out and that's when it gets diagnosed. But when the doctor can actually see the spots, because before then the doctor will agree, oh yes, you probably pulled a muscle. And that's a bother because the treatment for shingles needs to be started within three days. There's a 72-hour window. Because although the treatment could be given after that time, it really won't have much effect. Shingles needs to be treated early with the antiviral drugs. But I've known people who've had shingles, my, my own grandmother included, who you say the treatment has to be started within three days. She must have had it for months and months and months. Right. Now you see, that's no longer shingles. Shingles really is the name that we give to the blisters that happen and clear up usually within two weeks. In the case of my nephew who was 13, they cleared up in three days. Now, what can happen in older people particularly, or in some very unlucky younger ones, is that after the shingles blisters go away, the nerve that the virus used to travel to the skin surface by has been damaged by the virus travelling along the nerve, and it carries on sending these pain messages to your brain. And that's what people talk about when they say they've got shingles months later. It's not shingles, it's now called post-herpetic neuralgia. Neuralgia meaning that it's a, a pain created in the nerve. I often tell people it's a sort of ghost pain in that although the arm or the rib feels painful, there's actually nothing wrong with that arm or that leg. It really is that the nerve is sending a false message to your brain just as people who've had perhaps an amputated hand report that they still pe feel pain in that hand, although the pain isn't there. So it's the nerve itself which is creating this pain message. And it's very tricky to treat. How do you stop the shingles becoming post-herpetic pain? We don't have any way of stopping shingles from becoming post-herpetic neuralgia. Uh, although one expert pain doctor does suggest that anyone who is 50 or older who develops shingles should immediately be started on one of the two main drugs which are used to control this kind of pain. One is a tricyclic antidepressant, the other is an anti-epileptic drug. Originally, both of these drugs are used now mainly to treat this kind of pain, neuralgia. And his suggestion is that if you're 50, when you first develop shingles, the rash, you should immediately be started on this tricyclic antidepressant because these two drugs, they're really interesting, you know. They're not actually pain relief in that they don't actually stop pain right away, the way an aspirin or morphine would. What they do is slowly, over time, they build up a pain block. So day after day that you're taking these two drugs, another brick is added to the wall of blockage. And eventually, after three weeks, or in some people six weeks, and with the dose increasing regularly every 10 days, you'd need to put the dose up again. Your pain wall is now high enough that the message no longer reaches the brain. And once that's in place, you can start reducing the um, dosage of the tricyclic antidepressant or the anti-epileptic drug. And the pain block will hold, even though you're now reducing the dosage. You've just mentioned the illness chickenpox. Many people won't associate shingles with chickenpox. That's right. And one of the main 
concerns that people have when they phone the helpline of the Shingle Support Society is, how have I caught this? Or who can I go and visit? Who can catch what from me? So you start off by catching chickenpox as a kid. It remains in your neural ganglions. Those are nerve junction boxes beside every spinal vertebrae in your body. And then when it reactivates, it's called shingles. Now, you can only have shingles if you've had chickenpox. Nobody can catch shingles. It is always something that just develops because you had chickenpox in the past. And shingles is only transmitted to another person if they actually rub against the shingles sores. So a person with shingles, if they feel well enough, can continue normal social or work life. They don't have to stay at home. However, if somebody who has never had chickenpox rubs against the shingle sores, then they would catch chickenpox from the shingles outbreak. You have to think of chickenpox as the first thing, and shingles is just a repeat outbreak. Interesting, chickenpox itself is easily transmitted. You only have to be in a room with somebody with chickenpox for 15 minutes, and you are expected to have caught your chickenpox. So chickenpox is in the air, whereas shingles is not in the air. It's just transmitted by touch to somebody who's never had chickenpox. For those who've had chickenpox, which is probably most of us, is there any way of not having shingles? Shingles gets triggered by all sorts of different things, um, sometimes nothing at all except getting older, but often it's after an operation or a fall. There is now a vaccine to prevent shingles from developing, and it will be very cost-effective to vaccinate people because uh, although not everyone develops post-herpetic neuralgia following shingles, basically the older you are, the more likely it is that that is going to happen to you. And if you are unlucky and that shingles pain drags on, and it does for about one in five, it can really change your, your manner of living. You're going to, you might need social service support to do your shopping. Or One lady told me she didn't dare drive anymore because the shingles pain for her was a stabbing sensation that hit her across her forehead from time to time. She said, if I was driving a car at that time, you know, I'd be unsafe on the road, so I just don't dare drive anymore. Another lady was telling me that um, her husband couldn't bear wearing clothes because... The shingles pain, in his case, was a super sensitivity of the area around his left ribs. And the, just the brushing of his shirt across his ribs was felt to be by him such an excruciating pain that he just didn't want to wear a shirt. And I remember my grandmother, her face looked as if she'd been burnt in a fire. She could not touch it. Mm. Interesting that you say it looked like it, because quite often the problem is that although it feels like that to the patient, yes, a burning sensation is another one of the, um, the range of sensations. You see, because the nerve has been damaged, the pain can be felt in a myriad of different ways. Any message that the nerve has at any time sent is what your shingles pain can be. So it could be sensation of burning, itching, intolerable itching that pe keeps people awake at night, stabbing, aching, like a bruise sensation. And there, if people have had it, like your nan, on her, their face, they may actually end up having 
unnecessary dental work done because they think that the problem lies in their teeth, that deep ache. So all those sorts of different sensations can be the result of, of the damage caused by the virus in the nerve, which is why, you know, quite frankly, I am having that vaccination myself. That's Marion Nicholson, director of the Shingles Support Society, and their website is shinglesupport.org. Don't forget that you can download all the previous editions of Airing Pain or obtain CD copies direct from Pain Concern. If you'd like to put a question to Pain Concern's panel of experts or just make a comment about these programmes, then please do so via our blog, message board, email, Facebook, Twitter or pen and paper. All the contact details are at our website, which is painconcern.org.uk. Now, NHS information on that shingles vaccine says that it's licensed for use in people aged 50 and over, although it can be used off-label for people younger if a doctor feels it's suitable. And if a GP decides vaccination is appropriate, it can be prescribed on the NHS. In other cases, the vaccine will need to be given at a private clinic. But from September 2013, People aged 70 will be routinely offered the shingles vaccine on the NHS with a catch-up programme for people aged 71 to 79. Here's a final thought on shingles. I've had three children, I've got three grandchildren now, and I seem to remember, listen, chickenpox for my children isn't going to be pleasant, but let's get it over with. Let's go to a chickenpox party or something, let's have it. Now you seem to be saying that perhaps as a parent we should have avoided that. On the contrary, chickenpox caught uh, at a young age in, in usually early childhood, primary school age, is, as you say, a very mild disease. In some countries, they do vaccinate their children against chickenpox, but it's done for commercial reasons rather than for health reasons, in that when a child has chickenpox, a parent has to take a week off work. So in some countries, it is, is actually done for that reason. And the interesting thing is for the adult... The more times you have nursed someone with chickenpox, the less likely you are to have shingles because each time you meet the chickenpox virus, you're actually developing more antibodies. You're giving yourself a booster against having shingles.